Also, just a real quick aside, epigraph. Oh my gosh, I knew I heard that word before. I know, I read it and I was like, dang it. <sighs> epigraph, the thing before a chapter. <laughs> Makes sense. A little blurb before a chapter. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy? I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. And we're discussing chapter 14 of Assassin's Quest today, Smugglers. In the beginning of this chapter, discusses minstrels. So it's a little, (laughs) it feels weird. It's a chapter called Smugglers, and we're discussing minstrels first real quick. (laughs) Yes, this blurb starts off by explaining that minstrels don't have to play by the rules that everybody else do and that they can ask really personal, embarrassing questions and it isn't seen as rude as long as they are talented. That is the caveat. Yeah. If a minstrel is sufficiently talented, he can expect almost all rules of conduct to be suspended for him. They can also presume hospitality, you know, at the king's table or at the lowest, you know, hovel in the village. Yes. And they don't marry young. They usually marry later in life, but aren't expected to wait to have children till late in life. And their children are not subjected to the same societal views as every other bastard child. They're just children and they're usually raised in the keep as uh, minstrels. minstrels themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, again, it goes over what we've talked about them before that they also carry messages, bring news, hold in their long memories many uh, an agreement and promise. And also, it talks in here that they are kind of expected, societally expected to mix with, you know, outlaws. Uh, rebels as well as nobles and merchants yes. to get all those news and the stories and things like that. So it's never hold, held against them. It's a very, seems like a very freeing lifestyle. Yeah. At least for some people. You know. Yes. And at least during times of peace, which is how it ends. That right. right. This is true during times of peace. And so we get back to the story with Starling coming in late after Fitz had already gone to bed in her room. She stumbles in drunk, Fitz gets out of bed and sleeps on the ground, and Starling takes off her cloak and tucks it over Fitz as well, and just kind of passes out. Fitz wakes up in the morning and gets out before Starling is awake or even stirring at all, and finds a bathhouse and soaks and contemplates his next steps. He's easing in, you know trying to relieve some of the pain of the of his shoulder that we think is fractured or something mm-hmm. or Fitz thinks is fractured and thinks about, you know, his choice of going with the smugglers or having Starling along or trusting either of them. He doesn't have money to pay them. He immediately thinks of like, well, I won't give up my earring for this. Uh, I had little enough coin. Birik's earring? I refuse to consider it. And he thinks a little bit longer about that come to me phrase and what Verity gave up to ask Fitz to come to him. 
because he had little reserves left left in the skill, but didn't hesitate to, you know, bring Fitz towards him. So eventually he says, if I had to choose between parting with Burek's earring and going to Verity, I would choose Verity. Not because he had skill summoned me, nor even for the oath I had sworn to his father. For Verity. And I think this shows that Fitz really does love his uncle and respect him in a way that I don't think he felt for Shrewd. He was loyal to Shrewd, but I don't necessarily think it was out of a familial bond. Right. It was more of a promise of, well, you're keeping me clothed, fed and educated. So I'm going to fulfill this promise. And yes, it was his grandfather. And later on in life, he mourns the loss of his grandfather. But I think it wasn't as deep of a connection as he feels with Verity because Verity actually tried to get to know him and cared about him. And not that Shrewd necessarily didn't care for Fitz in his own way, but I think Verity cared for Fitz in a way that he could understand better. Right. Yeah. And and we've discussed that in in the first books episodes as well, like a little bit deeper about how Shrewd is all business and Verity was concerned with Fitz himself, not just what he could be for Verity. Yeah. And this is a little off the wall, but it kind of is striking to me because even though Fitz is the father of Verity's child that is coming. Right. Um, I think their son is the same as Verity. He's more concerned about people. Yeah. And not using them as game pieces. He wants I mean, them. so is Fitz, though, but and so, so is, is Ketrikin, who raised Right, right. <laughs> but I just, him. I think <laughs> <laughs> that's fair, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, no, Dutiful definitely takes after Verity's side of, you know, ruling. And we don't get to see much of who Chivalry actually is, but it seemed that he blended both of them a little bit but was leaning more towards Shrewd just because he was so perfect that he seemed aloof and couldn't connect as well with the common folk. So, yeah, I can see Dutiful kind of like leaning towards the the Verity side a little bit more with all the talk of sacrifice and everything. True, yeah. So Fitz cleans off. He settles um, with that decision in his head that he is going to go along with Starling, go along with the smugglers, pay any price he can to get to Verity to help him out. Goes down to breakfast at that inn that Starling is staying at and eats and sees the serving boy looking oddly at him a couple times. The third time, I caught his stare. I returned it until he blushed suddenly and looked aside. I divined then the reason for his interest. I'd spent the night in Starling's room, and no doubt he wondered what would possess her to share quarters with such a vagabond. But it was still enough to make me uncomfortable. The day was more than halfway to noon anyway. I rose and went up to the stairs to Starling's door. At the bath, he had tried to trim up his beard a little bit, but then gave it up halfway through. Right. (laughs) Which comes into play, because when he gets to Starling's room... Uh, he wakes her up knocking and she says, oh, you took a bath and then says, what did you do to your beard? <laughs> right. And Fitz has to admit that without success, he tried to trim it. And we learned that Starling could have been a hairstylist if she wanted to be. 
because she offers to fix it, which Fitz does not love the idea of, but she tries to, you know, help him get over his fears by explaining she used to cut her brother's hair and her father's hair and trim his his beard. So she has experience. And I think Fitz is just more worried about someone being near his face with sharp objects. True. Yeah, he's he's described as very uncomfortable throughout the whole thing as she offers to trim his beard, cut his hair and all that. He, multiple times he's like, this is uncomfortable and looks at her nervously and all that sort of stuff. So I thought I found that really funny. Right. So what's interesting about Starling's haircut that she gives Fitz is that First of all, she doesn't ask his opinion or take into account anything that he would want. She just starts cutting the hair. And when she's finished, she explains that it is more of a look of a merchant of Pharaoh because Fitz looked too much like a buck man. Right. And that is to his detriment because that's what everybody's looking for. And so... Though the way she goes about it is a little rough. Uh, Fitz <laughs> compares her to patience and just being stubborn and kind of making up her mind on her own. But she is being really helpful here. And yeah, she tells definitely. him this will help hide the white streak in your hair. And it does because she's given him bangs and gotten rid of a lot of the white. Yeah, trims out a lot and then pushes the rest forward over the top of the trimmed area. So you can't notice mm -hmm. and she knows the style and she tells him as long as you don't speak, nobody will be able to tell the difference. They'll be you have the coloring of a buck man, but the dress and hair of a pharaoh man. So it'll be just confusing enough to keep people off. Yep. And his beard is, you know, a, a little bit shorter and everything like that, but she still has to shape that as well. She gets breakfast called in and starts working on his beard as well. You know, going around his scar on his face and disguising that and giving him lips and a defined jaw instead of just <laughs> wild man <laughs> beard that uh -huh. he had before. Right. And Fitz says, it's quite a change. Pleased with how much less of it there was. It's a vast improvement, she informed me. I doubt that Crease or Dell, the puppet, the puppet master, would recognize you now. Let's just be rid of this. She throws the cuttings out of the window. Thank you, I said awkwardly. You're welcome, she told me. And that's that. Very quick, yeah. very efficient, just as Starling pretty much always is. Right. And, and I, I think it was very astute to compare her to Patience. Because she does have some of the same qualities, just in a different way. Yeah. I feel like Patience is more of a anxious person, whereas Starling feels more sure of herself. And I don't think that's a mean thing to say about Patience. I'm sure she would describe herself that way if she had the words. But A lot of, a lot of Patience's hobbies are self-contained or solo hobbies right that you can discuss with another person who knows your hobby but you know they're more for more for yourself yeah starling is the social one right and her hobbies and profession is talking to people which patience does not do so i i think i agree with you they're opposite sides of like what they do and how they portray who they are but they are the same stubborn 
confident women when you get them in their space. Right. Yeah. And I think I appreciate that about the both of them and the fact that we have a variety of stubborn women. (laughs) (laughs) Because Molly's a different breed as well. Yes. There's a whole nother type. Um, But I do also want to take a second to mention that Fitz notes that some of the breakfast bread he eats here is a special pharaoh bread that it has a bunch of different seeds and a little bit of fruit baked into it. Mm-hmm. And I want to make mention of that because it sounds really good and very fall-like and we're like coming into fall currently. <laughs> so I was like, ooh, I want some of that breakfast bread. <laughs> yeah, I'll read that passage real quick. I found a corner table near the hearth and had the serving boy bring me a pot of tea and a loaf of morning bread. This last proved to be a pharaoh concoction full of seeds and nuts and bits of fruit. Not bad. No, it sounds really good. <laughs> I, I don't think we focus a ton on food. Uh, sometimes the meat, I we suppose. We do, yeah. But yeah. Um, I love bread, and that bread just sounds really good. So. <laughs> <laughs> so she packs up swiftly and efficiently, as I mentioned before, she does everything with. And tells Fitz to wait for her at the bottom of the back stairs while I go settle my bill. I did as she bade me, but waited substantially longer in the cold and wind than I had expected. Eventually she emerged, rosy-cheeked and ready for the day. She stretched herself like a little cat. This way, she directed me. What do you think she was doing? Haggling down the price? Yeah, I think so. A part of my brain... And I don't know if this is fair of me to say, but a part of my brain thinks that uh, she slept with the the boy who like or like the man right. who worked there that like showed interest in her mm. to get it for free or like bargain it down. Right. Because there's a few times where like that man's like, what are you doing? Fits like right. kind of thing. It's like mentioned across two chapters and we see she is very cavalier with um, her body in general and her attitude towards sex right. and things like that and thinks it's just like a companion thing. So, you know, part of my brain was like, hmm, maybe. But she's also a very fierce haggler. That's true. Yeah. Which so, we learned this chapter. Yeah, we do. So it could be either one. I don't, I don't know. I think. I don't know. I guess I just always assumed she was taking so long because she was just haggling the price down. She's like, mm, I don't think I need to pay for that. It could be. I just just I mean, the phrasing maybe, of waited substantially longer, and then she came. She emerged rosy cheeked and ready for the day. After that, so I don't know. Like, I mean, yeah, it. It doesn't like make a difference either no, way. It but <laughs> I don't know. I feel like Starling would not have any qualms about using any ne- means available yeah. to lower a price on something. Definitely, but. Yeah, I don't know. I just thought I was just wondering what you thought <laughs> she was doing, because like settle a bill and then it's a substantially long time later. <laughs> That's fair. That's super fair. I guess I was just like, wow, she must really be haggling. I don't know. <laughs> Loves the deal. <laughs> well, either way, they uh, they head on out. They're walking through the markets and Starling is taking him by the arm and kind of leading him towards where they need to go. And Starling can also tell that Fitz has made up his mind about something and says, I hope it's to trust me. (laughs) Which is not necessarily the case. Although, to be honest, I feel like at this point she's she's in Fitz's group 
Oh, yeah. He cares about her now. Not even in like a sexual or romantic way. I think once Fitz compares somebody to somebody he knows, that's it. They're in the group. He loves them. (laughs) They're part of his family. He's going to protect them. And I think that's she's joking here and he feels like he doesn't trust her. But ultimately, I think he does. Yeah, he he often does say that he doesn't want her tagging along, which I think is still true at this point. Sure. But for the immediate, you know, immediate sense of like, I need her to get across the river to the mountains. I am trusting her like I am with her. She is (laughs) on my side. And that's kind of like the decision that he did make a little bit that and to get to Verity no matter what. Right. And so they uh, they walk along this road outside of town towards these farms and it seems pretty abandoned out there. And Fitz is wondering, like, how do you know where to go? And Starling is kind of evasive. Right. She's just saying, I'm simply following directions. Watch for three stacked rocks at the side of the road. What do you really know of these smugglers? I demanded. She shrugged a bit too casually. I know they are going to the mountains when no one else is, and I know they are taking the pilgrims with them. Pilgrims? Or whatever you wish to call them. They go to honor Ida's shrine in Mountain Kingdom. They'd bought passage on a barge earlier in the summer, but then when uh, the King's Guard claimed all the barges as their own and went off and the embargo happened, they kind of got trapped in Blue Lake. Right. So we're not able to go and they found a way across where they could. Right. And I do want to take a second to talk about the pilgrims. Mm-hmm. I think this is another interesting random little piece of this world that we're yeah. never going to touch again. Right. But it's so interesting that there is some type of worship of Ida specifically where a pilgrimage is normal. It, I don't know. It doesn't really explain. And maybe later with the with talks we will over here, we'll know. But I don't know if this is something that they do multiple times in their life or if this is kind of like Jewish people to Jerusalem where people try to make it at least once and more if they can. It's not super clear, but it is really interesting to just randomly have, oh, yeah, you know, the pilgrims. Mm -hmm. And it seems like somewhat common knowledge that there are people who make pilgrimages to the shrines, although it could seem like it's somewhat common knowledge because it is coming from a minstrel who knows a lot about history in general. So, yeah, Fitz doesn't know, but it is Fitz. So, yeah, it's like very <laughs> it hard to be tell. Common. <laughs> well, one thing we do know about these pilgrims is that Kettle is with them. Yes. And she is not going to eat a shrine. She's going to find the white prophet. We know that. And from upcoming chapters, we kind of get a little hints of what the other pilgrims are going for. Right. Um, I know this is jumping the gun, I think, to either next chapter or the chapter after, uh, where Kettle kind of derisively says that, you know, I'm not going to pray at Edith's shrine for fertility. I'm Mm, going for the white prophet. And then also mentions that one of the mothers there has a sick child who is on and off sick all the time, and Kettle thinks that she's going to find a cure for her son. Right. So there are different reasons that the pilgrims go. It's not really gone into much more than those two options, as far as I can tell. Right. Well, it makes sense because Ida is the 
goddess of land yep. and farmers, mm-hmm. which is fertility yeah. and peace. So I get why people would go to her for those reasons. Yeah, definitely. Definitely wouldn't want to go to L, the god of um, <laughs> the destroying water. people. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Being Un- angry, people want his help. I don't know. <laughs> Uncaring. Harsh. <laughs> so they came upon the symbol that they were looking for, the three stacked rocks. They go through a weedy track, through a rocky, brambly pasture, surrounded by a rock and pole fence. A few horses were grazing disconsolately. I noted with noted with interest they were mountain bred, small and patchy coated at this time of year. There's a little house set well back from the road, and there is a man on the fence, um, sitting on the fence, whittling at something. He lifted his eyes to regard us and evidently decided we were no threat. He made no challenge to us as we passed him and went to the door of the cottage. Starling knocks, and a man answers um, from around the house, walks towards the front, and says, Who do you seek? immediately. And Starling replies, Nick. I know no Nick, the man said. He opened the door and went into the house. So they follow him inside and, you know, see a boy and a spotted kid, so a small goat, a baby goat are sitting there in the house with a, uh, a woman as well, and he sets down his bucket, turns back to them, and just says mildly, I think you've come to the wrong house. Try down the roadways, not the next house. That's where Pelf lives, but beyond, maybe. Thank you kindly, we shall, Starling smiled round at them all and went to the door. Coming, Tom, she asked me, and nodded pleasantly at the folk and followed her. We left the house and walked up the lane. When we were well away, I asked her, Now what? I'm not precisely sure. From what I overheard, I think we go to Pelf's house and ask for Nick. From what you overheard? You don't think I have personal knowledge of smugglers, do you? I was in the public baths. Two women were talking as they bathed. Pilgrims on their way to the mountains. Fitz says nothing at that. And he thinks to himself, I suppose my expression said it all, for Starling asked me indignantly, Do you have any better ideas? This will either work out or it won't. It may work out to us with our throats cut. Then go back to town and see if you can do better. If we did that, the man following us would decide we were certainly spies and do more than just follow us. Let us go on to Pelf and see what comes of it. No, don't look back. Starling is very confident in herself because she did not even know all the details or for sure where to go. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I guess she knows where to go because she heard them give each other directions, but she doesn't even know for sure the full details of this endeavor. I'll figure it out as I go. (laughs) Yep. She's like the opposite and fits in this because fits worries about every little detail so incessantly some of the time i guess sometimes he just jumps in but whenever he's not feeling depressed he seems (laughs) to think a little bit more and worry about every little detail going awry and starling seems to have no care in the world she's like well it'll work out we'll figure it out and it's kind of fun to see them together and especially in this chapter because they're so 
I don't know. It's like an old married couple yeah, back and forth. Honestly, and it's, yeah. <laughs> it's very fun. I really like their friendship. So they continue on to the next house and Fitz notes that someone had once cared about this next farm. Once there had been a line of silver birches to either side of the drive. And there was a, I know, extensive pastures and fields that had been fenced in. But, you know, whatever stock the fields held, they were gone. The trees were kind of skeletons dropping leaves because it's almost winter. It just looks very poorly kept now. And he asks Starling, what happens to this land? What has happened to this land? And she describes a years long drought, which was then followed by wildfires that raged for like a month. (laughs) And then finally, when the waters did come, they came so strongly and so much at once that it washed away anything that was left. So all that's left is like the rocks and some dirt. Poor, poor land for farming. Yep. Fitz kind of thinks that he had heard something like that from Chade, remarking like a lesson that. People blame the king for everything, even fires and droughts. So he thinks that's kind of related to this area. Right. And we know that this is most definitely what Chade was referring to because of the previous chapters. Right. Little mini blurb before beginning the actual story. I feel like there's a word for those blurbs. And I stuff. know. <laughs> And I could just call them blurbs or little thing before the chapter or whatever. They definitely have a word. I don't know off the top of my head. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I'll figure it out and maybe say it next episode or something. (laughs) And so they approach this house. It was two stories built of timber, but its paint was long faded. And Fitz can tell that it was uh, built with a loving hand and everything like that beforehand. But again, fallen into disrepair. A young girl stood before the door of the house, a fat gray pigeon perched on her hand, and she was stroking it lightly. Good day, she bid us in a pleasantly low voice as we approached. Her tunic was leather over a loose cream shirt of wool. She wore leather trousers as well, and boots. I put her age at about twelve, and knew she was some kin to the folk in the other house by her eyes and hair. Good day, Starling returned to her. We are looking for Nick. The girl shook her head. You have come to the wrong house. There is no Nick here. This is Pelf's house. Perhaps you should seek farther down the road. She smiled at us, no more than puzzlement on her face. Starling gave me an uncertain glance. I took her arm. We have been given poor directions. Come, let us take ourselves back to town and try again. At that time, I hoped no more than to get ourselves out of the situation. But, she objected in confusion, I had a sudden inspiration. Shush, we were warned that these people are not to be taken lightly. The bird must have gone astray, or a hawk taken it. There is nothing more to be done here today. A bird, the girl piped suddenly. Only a pigeon. Good day to you. I put my arm about Starling and turned her firmly. We did not mean to bother you. Whose pigeon? I let my eyes meet hers for a moment. A friend of Nick's. Do not let it concern you. Come, Starling. Wait, the girl said suddenly. My brother is inside. Perhaps he knows this Nick. I would not wish to bother him, I assured her. No bother. The bird on her hand stretched out his wings as she gestured to the door with it. Come inside, out of the cold for a bit. 
It is a cold day, I conceded. I turned to confront the whittler just as he was emerging from the line of birches. Perhaps we should all go inside. Perhaps, the girl grinned at my shadow's discomfiture. thought that was uh, a nice showing of Fitz's bursts of inspiration that he does get and his yes. cleverness that he does show once in a while. And older Fitz does let us see once in a while. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he isn't as dumb as we sometimes think he is. Yeah, he's definitely not inept in every situation. <laughs> no, he just was a little rusty earlier in this book. And he's kind of gotten back in the swing of things and he's doing a really good job. This is super good thinking on his feet and using the information that he has at hand. Yeah, definitely. But it's interesting how quickly Starling is also willing to go along with everything. Fitz just kind of starts making up on the fly. Yeah. She doesn't seem as good at like playing along, I guess is, I don't think that's what I want to say, but she doesn't really yes and the situation. She kind of just is silent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I feel like when she turns to him in confusion that like, oh, no, Nick's not here or whatever. She that's the end of her instruction that she overheard from the pilgrim women. So then she's lost. Right. And they wouldn't have gotten any farther without Fitz. Exactly. It's just not her strong suit, which is fine (laughs) she has others but it's so interesting to see them work together and Mm -hmm. help each other on the parts that they're not good at and these next couple parts uh starling is very out of her element and she is kind of scared i will say through the descriptions of her she is clinging very close to fitz grabbing onto his arms taking a breath to talk to him but fitz is like hush Instead, she took my arm. I made the excuse of stooping to adjust my boot. As I straightened, I turned and put her on my left side. She immediately took hold of that arm. And he's freeing him his sword arm up, just in case. Right. And she seems like, I don't know what's going on here kind of thing. Right. Let's just, you know, continue the act, <laughs> I guess, as long as we can. Yeah. Well, to be fair, she's trained not to be a liar, And Fitz is the exact opposite. Yes, yeah, (laughs) true. Uh, That's actually a good point about her character as well. She doesn't hesitate to be frank about anything and upfront. So she's not, she isn't really somebody who lies about things, I don't think. No, no, she's not. And she's not afraid to let people be uncomfortable in the truth. No, she will withhold information, of course. Right. But she, she doesn't she sees an advantage. Yeah, but she doesn't make things up. So, right. yeah, <laughs> so that's good, I guess. <laughs> Unless it's in her songs for a reason, you know, <laughs> right. That's more extrapolating. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> artist interpretation of the events. Yes, exactly. It seemed a very long time before the door opened. A tall man, brown hair and blue eyed, came out. He was dressed like the girl in leathers. A very long knife hung at his belt. The girl came on his heels, looking petulant. He had rebuked her then. He scowled at us and demanded, What's this about? My mistake, sir, I said immediately. We were seeking one named Nick, and obviously we have come to the wrong house. Your pardon, sir. He spoke reluctantly. I have a friend with a cousin named Nick. I could give word of of you to him, perhaps. I squeezed Starling's hands for silence. 
No, no, we wouldn't wish to trouble you, unless you'd like to tell us where we could find Nick himself. I could take a message, he offered again, but it was not really an offer. And I do want to pause here because everyone knows that this is Nick. This turns out to be Nick. Right. And I... I absolutely love this conversation between him and Fitz because they're talking around things the whole time. But you like you can tell Fitz knows that this. Oh, yeah, this is Nick or one who. At this point in the conversation, it's either Nick or somebody who is like directly linked to Nick and can find him immediately kind of thing. Right. Yeah, I don't think Fitz knows for 100 percent certainty that. It is really Nick. Until a little bit later. And, yeah, until yeah. later. But I think he definitely knows that this person knows who Nick is. Yeah, I think the next paragraph or so, then it's like confirmed that he's Nick. Right. <laughs> Fitz scratches at his beard, considering, I have a friend whose cousin wished to send something across the river. He had heard that Nick might know someone who could take it for him. He promised my friend's cousin that he would send a bird to let Nick know we were coming. For a fee, of course. That was all. A paltry matter. He gave a slow nod. I've heard of folks hereabouts who do such things. It's dangerous work, yes. Treasonous work, too. They'd pay with their heads if the Kingsguard caught them. That they would, I agreed readily. But I doubt that my friend's cousin would do business with this kind of folk who'd get caught. That was why he was wishing to speak to Nick. And who was it sent you here to seek this Nick? I forget, I said coolly. I'm afraid I'm rather good at forgetting names. Are you? the man asked consideringly. He glanced at his sister and gave a small nod. May I offer you some brandy? That would be most welcome, I told him. And after that exchange, I'm pretty sure Fitz is 100% convinced this was Nick. It was like his percentage meter of, you know, surety was increasing (laughs) every little line that was spoken. Right, right. (laughs) But it is... Interesting to watch Fitz play this game of intrigue, I guess. Mm -hmm. And this feels similar to probably how court people would talk, where you're talking about something, but really the conversation is about something else. I feel like I've I've talked about this way too often now on this podcast because this is Realm of the Elderlings podcast and not Wheel of Time podcast. But (laughs) it reminds me of uh, Dice Daymar. Which is like the game in Wheel of Time, which is just a political game where if you go into a city and are in the upper crust, everybody is playing it and it's just trying to gain position over each other. And all of the conversations feel like this. Mm. And it's written in a way like, oh, you're talking about other things while talking about the weather. And it's right. Yeah. I think it's a fun style to see it is especially because we don't really get to see as much as this is a book about an assassin we don't really get to see the intrigue part very much where there's like the fancy talk talking in code and Mm -hmm. you know the reader being able to understand it but also it's still not plain (laughs) right yeah so i think i really like it for that and this chapter also feels very different from i think most of what we've been reading up until this point just because it's more Fitz getting back into his element and being confident yeah. almost. I don't know if I, I hesitate to say confident, but he kind of is. He's not thinking about what could go wrong so much right now. And it's much more of 
plot than just I need to escape and go north. It's right. like let's talk to these people and try to wriggle our way into getting a service from them. Yes. And there's a there's a goal <laughs> in mind. Exactly. And in sight. <laughs> So they settle down, get some cups, and pour some brandy. Nick, as we know, it's just the man at this point, tells the little girl to fetch some cups. And Fitz says, I guessed his age at about 25. Older brothers are not the kindest of heroes because he says that (laughs) he asks her or tells her to get the cups and doesn't really ask politely. I thought that was kind of a, a cute little line. Now, you were saying, he offered when we were settled before the fire. Actually, you were saying, I suggested. He was silent as his sister came back with cups. He passed them to us as he filled them, and the four of us raised cups together. Which is interesting, because she was about 12. Right, yeah. (laughs) To King Regal, he suggested. To my king, I offered affably and drank. It was good brandy, one Burek would have appreciated. King Regal would see folk like our friend Nick swinging, the man suggested. Or more likely, in his circle, I suggested. I gave a small sigh. It's a dilemma. On the one hand, King Regal threatens his life. On the other hand, without King Regal's embargo on the mountains, what livelihood would Nick pursue? I heard all that his family holding, family's holdings grow these days is rocks. The man nodded in commiseration. Poor Nick. A man must do something to survive. That he must, I agreed, and sometimes to survive, a man must cross a river, even if his king forbids it. Must he? the man asked. Now, that's a bit different from sending something across the river. Not that different, I told him, if Nick is good at his trade. The one should no more tax him than the other. And I'd heard Nick was good. The best, the girl said with quiet pride. Her brother shot her a warning glance. What would this man be offering to cross? he asked quietly. He'd offer it to Nick himself, I said as softly. For a few breaths, the man looked into the fire. Then he stood and extended a hand. Nick, hold fast. My sister, Pelf. And there it is. He talked his way into finding Nick himself. Right. And he did a good job. Mm -hmm. Also, I just want to back up for a second because you made the comment about this girl being 12 and drinking. Um, I'm pretty sure that is the exact age Fitz was when Burek said the cure to heartache was to get drunk. So (laughs) (laughs) So to be fair to her, seems like the culture. Yeah, true. (laughs) But yes, Fitz has now figured out for sure this is Nick. Nick has admitted it and they're all on equal footing and they can begin to talk in real ways now. I have a I have an interesting question for you. When Nick offered up the toast to King Regal, do you think that was heartfelt? Because remember, we are in an inner duchy. Hmm. You know, I'm going to say no. And for the reason that Fitz mentioned earlier that people blame the king for everything. I was thinking the exact same thing, actually. Not even because Regal deserves it, because he does, but just because he's ruined the livelihoods of the people of Blue Lake. Yep. Yeah, and there's no, he has the embargo there. Yeah. And can't trade. And he hasn't mentioned anything about the 
the witch up in the mountain kingdoms blocking anything or right. And Fitz made comment that it was King Regal's embargo Mm -hmm. stopping things. And Nick did not disagree. That's why that's why I that's what I thought initially was that this was fake. And then I thought, like, wait, it's an introduction, maybe. And then uh, I went back to that reasoning of like, no, I'm pretty sure he was just offering this up as another test for Fitz to see if he would like. You know, give him anything to not trust him. Right. So, no, I definitely think. I mean, I think inner duchy people as a whole probably like Regal more than outer duchy people, obviously. But I don't think that means that all of them are diehard Regal fans. Right. And I think especially when your livelihood is the one being controlled, you're more likely to be angry about the king not doing anything for so long. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I guess some of the other people we've talked to who were so anti mountain witch were kind of affected by what was going on, but they still were able to find jobs and to find a way to make money. Whereas if your only job is trade because you cannot farm the land, that's not good enough to grow crop or to have animals that would graze because nothing grows. You have nothing when the only source of income is shut down. There isn't really find another lawful way to get money. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I definitely think we were primed to know <laughs> he may not be a Regal fan, although I'm sure he doesn't hate him at the level as the outer duchies people do. Right. More just disgruntled. Mm-hmm. And I think Fitz hits on that very well. Saying that, oh, it's a dilemma. On one hand, without the embargo, you know, you wouldn't have the livelihood you have now, getting as much money and stuff. But with it, he does threaten your life. So I think Fitz found a a good balance between the two. Right. Definitely. And so they introduce themselves, and Nick now offers to speak plainly. And Fitz gladly takes that. And basically lays out their whole thing. We had heard that you were taking a group of pilgrims over the river and across the border into the mountain kingdom. We seek the same service. At the same price, Starling chimed in smoothly. Nick, I don't like this, Pelf broke in suddenly. Someone's tongue has been wagging too freely. I knew we should have never agreed to that first lot. How do we know? Hush, I'm the one taking the risks, so I'll be the one to say what I will or will not do. You've not to do but wait here and mind things while I'm gone, and see that your own tongue doesn't wag. He turned back to me. It will be a gold each, up front, and another at the other side of the river, a third at the mountain border. Ah, the price was shocking. We can't, Starling dug her nails suddenly into my wrist. I shut my mouth. And so there's a haggling page here. I don't know how much detail you want to go into here, but Fitz is very bad at it. And Starling is very good. (laughs) Yes. Starling points out that there's no way that's what he asked the pilgrims to pay. And he points out that the pilgrims have their own supplies and horses and a way to get across. And Starling says, well... It's not that much more to help us, so, you know, you should give us a lower price. And Fitz kind of just wants to get this over with, so he says, okay, we'll pay you two gold each. And Sterling is looking at him like, 
no. <laughs> so they end up needing to take an aside. Sterling says, we just need to talk this over one minute, please. And Sterling asks Fitz how much money he has. It's not very much. And Starling doesn't have that much either, apparently. I mean, she has a couple gold, I'm sure, but not four to six gold. And right, exactly. Yeah, and she's like, well, I thought you had more, and then rebukes him for being so bad at haggling. She's She tells him, you're giving too much up front, there, you, and you're asking for too little. That's mm. not how this works. And you need to make him meet us. Yeah. And the bargain that um, Starling is hoping to strike is two gold for both of them to cross and get to the mountain border. Right. And that's why the aside is there. Like, hey, how much money do you have? Fits? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she thought he would have more money than he did. And he does not. So they don't have enough for the two gold. And she's just like, what else you got? Yeah. <laughs> and so Fitz has to talk about his earring and he says, I really don't want to part with this. It was given to me by a friend. It was my father's and his friend gave it to me. Mm -hmm. And Starling says, well, I'll be sure to part with it only in the most careful of ways. Yeah. If it must go, I'll see that it goes dearly. And then almost immediately offers it up (laughs) for trade. Well, she does say, we'll give you what coin we have now. It's not as much as you ask. But at the mountain border, I'll give you all my jewelry as well. Rings, earrings, all of it. What say you? He shook his head slowly. It's not enough for me to risk hanging over. What's the risk, Starling demanded. If they discover you with the pilgrims, you'll hang. You've already been paid for that risk in what they gave you. We don't increase your risk, only your supply burden. Surely it's worth that. He shook his head almost reluctantly. Starling turned and held out her hand to me. Show it to him, she said quietly. I felt almost sick as I opened my pouch and fingered out the earring. What I might have might not seem like much at first glance, I told him, unless a person were knowledgeable about such things. I am. I know what I have and I know what it's worth. It's worth whatever trouble you'd have to go through for us. I spread it out on my palm, the fine silver net trapping the sapphire within. Then I picked it up by the pin and held it up before the dancing fire. It's not just the silver or the sapphire. It's the workmanship. Look how supple is the silver net. See how fine the links. Starling reached one fingertip to touch it. King-in-waiting chivalry once owned it, she added respectfully. Coins are more easily spent, Nick pointed out. I shrugged. If coins to spend are all a man wants, that is true. Sometimes there is pleasure in owning of something. Pleasure greater than coins in the pocket. But when it is yours, you could change it for coins if you wished. Were I to attempt it now, in haste, I'd get but a fraction of its worth. But a man with your connections and the time to bargain well could get well over four goals for it. But if you'd rather, I could go back to town with it and... Greed had kindled in his eyes. I'll take it, he conceded. On the other side of the river, I told him. I lifted the jewelry and restored it to my ear. Let him look at it each time he looked at me. I made it formal. You undertake to get us both safely to the other side of the river, and when we get there, the earring is yours. 
As your sole payment, Starling added quietly, though we will allow you to hold all our coins until then, as a surety. So they struck a, they struck a deal. Yeah, Nick agrees. Yeah, and Fitz has to get rid of his earring at the other side of the river. Which we know does not happen because he gets attacked. Right. But <laughs> that's in his mind. Yes. And it's sad. Although the whole time I'm like, oh, I wish Fitz wasn't such a stand-up guy because he could totally just leave all the money with him and run by the time they get to the other side of the river. And get away. I mean, probably get away with it. Yeah. But he would never do something like that. He's given his word. So he would do it if... It came to that. Right. Right. So Fitz asks, when are we leaving? And Nick tells them when the weather is right. And Fitz says tomorrow would be better. And Nick doubles down that if the weather weather is good tomorrow, then it'll be tomorrow. Otherwise, we'll wait till the weather is better. And Fitz is a little disappointed, but at least happy to know that he is on his way one step closer to getting to the mountains right the weather is when it's about to storm pretty right. much yeah so that covers the tracks of all the pilgrims and all of his men leaving yes so they kind of have to wait for that <laughs> fitz doesn't know it but that's no. what they have to wait for yes and fitz is ready to go back to town but starling haggles herself another deal of getting a room for the night and food for the price of singing some songs. Mm -hmm. I I wonder how much she's had to do this in her life. Like just haggle prices. Right. (laughs) Right. That's literally her job pretty much besides singing is. Yeah. What can I get out of my songs? (laughs) Well, I suppose in a place where there's a big difference in like income equality between classes of people. Yeah. Sometimes just being able to have food and oh, yeah. a bed is worth not actually getting paid. hundred percent. And so I wonder if it's part of that of just, you know what? I have a really good talent. I am very good at singing and have very interesting songs. I deserve at least a free meal and free lodging. Yeah. <laughs> And so they get a room at that house. They get a meal for Starling's songs as well. And there is a giant bed. I have a, I think I have a typo in my book. I don't know if you have the same thing. Oh. It says there was an immense bed with a feather bed on it and yeah, graying mine hangings. Also, mine also says that. Okay. <laughs> immense bed with a feather bed on it. Interesting. I don't really know what it's supposed to be, but maybe like feather blankets or. I think it is a feather bed, but maybe maybe it's supposed to be like a um, what are those called? Like a poster bed. You yeah, know, like what a talking four about? poster like. Yeah, like know. king style. Yeah, maybe. But, you know, it was one of those like, oh, I'll come back when I think of the word. <laughs> Forgot all about it. I don't know. But that is really funny. So. Starling drapes the uh, the hangings and the, the blankets by the fire to air them out and dry them out and warm them. And they start to get ready for uh, for bed. And Fitz is very, very weary. He was checking the locks. He shut everything. Everything seems sound. 
and he was almost suddenly too weary to reply. He told himself it was the brandy followed by the beer. He sits down and gets his boots off, and it's pretty much falling asleep. And she asks about his earring at that point. Right. Was it truly chivalry, she asked me, for a while? And you'd give it up to get to the mountains. What would he say? Don't know. Never knew the man, I suddenly sighed. By all accounts, he was fond of his little brother. I don't think he'd begrudge me get spending it to get to Verity. Then you do go to seek out your king. Of course, I tried in vain to stifle yawn. Somehow it seemed foolish to deny it now. I'm not sure it was wise to mention chivalry to Nick. He might make a connection. I turned to look at her. Her face was too close. I couldn't bring her features into focus. But I'm too sleepy to care, I added. You've no head for Mary, bud, she laughed. There was no smoke tonight. In the cake. She told you it was spiced. Is that what she meant? Yes, that's what spiced means all over Pharaoh. Oh, in Buck, it means there's ginger. Or citron. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Fitz. (laughs) A little bit too much of an edible. (laughs) (laughs) So he, yeah, so he is a little high at this point, or at least affected by the smoke, I should say. (laughs) And tells Starling the truth, that he is going across Uh, the lake or the river to get to the mountains to find Verity. Right. It kind of surprises Starling that Fitz seems so trusting of Nick. And she asks, you know, do you trust him? And Fitz goes, no, not at all. And she says, but you made a deal with him. And Fitz goes, well, I trust him. And as far as, He'll get the job done. Yeah, as far as his word goes. Yeah. With that, but. But if we fully trusted him, they would take us as fools. And just like they don't fully trust us, there is no reason. He's a smuggler. <laughs> he has a shady job, so. Right. He's not if, super trustworthy. If we fully trusted them, they wouldn't respect us at all. Yeah. <laughs> like, they'd think we were gullible and stupid. I think Starling respects that answer. And they both decide to go to bed. Fitz is going to lay in front of the the hearth, but Starling says, listen, this is a giant bed. Let's just share it. And Fitz needs very little convincing. Specifically said that bed's big enough for four. Yes. It's a California king, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) And so they both climb in. They both have their own blankets and they are falling into a deep, deep sleep because Fitz is... You know, he's drank some brandy, some beer, had some Mary Bud. He's ready to pass out. Right. And to be fair, this sounds amazing. A big, giant, fluffy bed at the end of a long day, especially when you're cold all day. <laughs> With uh, a fire in the room. Yes. You're having a nice meal. You the only know. problem is I'm allergic to down feather, so my head would be killing me. I'd have the worst <laughs> headache and my nose would be super stuffed up. But I bet it would be super comfy other than that. (laughs) (laughs) He also notes that in towards the morning, he wakes up because Starling flings an arm across him. And he notes that she has migrated from her side of the bed to sleeping against his back to keep warm. I started to ease away from her, but it was too warm and companionable. Her breath was against the back of my neck. There was a woman's smell to her that was not a perfume, but a part of her. 
I closed my eyes and lay very still. Molly. The sudden, desperate longing I felt for her was like a pain. I clenched my teeth to it. I willed myself into sleep again. It was a mistake. And he still dreams once again and goes towards Molly. Right. And this uh, is Molly not in a great light anymore. No. Um, she is having a rough go of it, being a single mother. She is haggard, weary, and the baby is crying and crying and not stopping. Right. And Fitz says that he hears her singing, but obviously at this point it has lost all tune because she has been repeating it so long to try to get the baby to sleep that it's just more of her talking in rhythm. Fear yeah. comes in, says, hey, can I help? I couldn't sleep with the crying. Um, and she nods him in, says, what are you doing awake? And he's like, yeah, I, I couldn't sleep. <laughs> yeah, the, the baby was really loud. And then he asks if maybe she's sick. And this kind of is Molly's breaking point. She kind of breaks down a little and explains that she doesn't know that she won't eat. And she just keeps crying and she can't get the baby to do anything. And it's just really hard. And she doesn't know what to do. I don't know what's wrong with her. There was a misery in Molly's voice far past the use of tears. And Beric offers to help. Mm-hmm. He says, let me take her. You go to bed. There's no use in, use in both of you being sleep deprived and getting sick. So you take a nap and I'll take the baby for a little bit. And Molly kind of doesn't understand. Yeah. She's like, you want to take the baby? You truly do that, huh? Yeah. And Beric says, of course. Yeah, you go. And Molly. Well, he says, I may as well. I can't yeah. sleep through her crying. <laughs> That's fair. He's not. <laughs> it's he Beric's will... answer version of, of course. Yes. <laughs> um, but she doesn't want to give in right away because that's who Molly is and kind of says, you know, well, why don't you warm up first? I'll make some tea. And he takes the baby and says, no, you go to bed. Don't wait anymore. I have got this. And Molly asks again, are you really want to help take care of the baby? And Derek says, yes. Yeah, we'll be fine. Go on now. Molly walks slowly across the room. She looks back at Beric, but he was looking into the baby's face. Hush now, he told her. Hush. Molly clambered into bed and pulled the blankets up over herself. Beric did not sit down. He stood before the fire, rocking slightly on his feet as he patted the baby's back slowly. Beric, Molly called to him quietly. Yes, he did not turn around to look at her. There's no sense you're sleeping in that shed this in this weather. You should move inside for the winter and sleep by the hearth. Oh, well, it's not so very cold out there. It's all in what you're used to, you know. A small silence fell. Beric. I would feel safer were you closer. Molly's voice was very small. Oh, well, then I suppose I shall be. But there's nothing you need fear tonight. Go to sleep now, both of you. He bent his head and I saw his lips brush the top of the baby's head. Very softly, he began singing to her. I tried to make out the words, but his voice was too deep. Nor did I know the language. The baby's wailing became less determined. 
He began to pace slowly around the room with her, back and forth before the fire. I was with Molly as she watched him until she, too, fell asleep to Birik's soothing voice. The only dream I had after that was of a lone wolf, running endlessly running. He was as alone as I was. So Molly accepts Birik into helping her. Yes. Before he was kind of outside doing some chores around the house or whatever, but she was alone as a single parent. And now she kind of sees that, you know, Birik is willing to help and able to help and right. can be a, um, like, this is the start of her considering, like, this is a p- potential partner to help me in this life because it's right. hard out here. Right. And I think maybe a little bit of love growing between the two of them. I just, I don't know. At least know. respect and admiration. Yes. You know? Yeah. I don't know how Bjork is feeling here because we don't get much insight to him with right. him being closed off to the skill, but he seems to very much care about Nettle and in turn care about Molly's well-being, just as someone he's come to take care of. Mm-hmm. And there may not be any romantic feelings on Bjork's part at this point, but I think this is Molly softening to him. Yeah. And to be fair to Molly, she's had about a year, maybe a little bit more to mourn the death and loss of Fitz. Yeah, I think the loss of Fitz a little bit more than a year, the death of Fitz less than a year. Yeah. But maybe about a year. <laughs> yeah, it, it's hard to tell exactly time wise, but I think she's starting to realize, well, he's dead. I don't there's nothing to hold out for. And right. I am alone and this is hard. Mm-hmm. And it would be it's she's very young and that makes things harder. She doesn't have any family to fall back on. So there's no you know, group of people to help learn what to do next. Yeah. She's what, like 23 or something like that. So yeah, it's hard out there. Yeah. And so, you know, having someone who not only is willing to help, but is able and knowledgeable, right. Especially with children Mm -hmm. is huge. And I think, I don't know. I just think that her heart is warming up to him a little bit more. And Robin Hobb has written before, I think in the first book, that a lot of partnerships and marriages come about as convenience and out of necessity Mm -hmm. because Buck and the six duchies in general can be a very harsh place to live. Right. Especially right now with the raids and the war and basically the civil war brewing. Right. There's a lot of uncertainty in the air. So. Right. And yeah, it's. It's tricky because I don't love the age difference between Molly and Burek. I think it's a little iffy, personally. But this is also not real. It is a fantasy book. And with the culture that they're living in and how hard it would be to be a single mother, I totally get it. Yeah, I think they're about 17 years difference. I think Birik's about 40 because he was like 26 when he got Fitz and Fitz was already six years old. So he's like 20 years older than Fitz and Fitz is three years younger than Molly. Yeah. Yeah. So I think about 17 years difference. Right. So 40 and 23, but out of necessity and everything and and the help. She's 23, which is not a teenager. So that makes it a little better. 
We know Garrick that. is cute and also <laughs> very knowledgeable and, and thoughtful. And thought- he's a he is a great guy. Polite. Yes. <laughs> Only problem is that he drinks. And even then, now he stopped. Yeah. Well, he had a, a relapse. Bit. He. He relapses a lot in his life. Well, it's an addiction, you know, it's a struggle. And I think that's real. And I appreciate that he at least tries. Mm -hmm. And I think so does Molly. (laughs) So it's not like her father where he just had given in to the addiction. There is like a want to not to rise above Mm -hmm. the addiction. And I think that's very admirable of Burek and hard. (laughs) And the last thing in this chapter the only dream I had after that was of a lone wolf running, running, endlessly running. He was as alone as I was. Which means they had each other. Yes. Because it's Night Eyes returning to Fitz. Yes. And we'll discuss more of why uh, Night Eyes is coming back in the next chapter. Yes. I believe it's the next chapter. But, uh, yeah, I, I had forgotten about that part. I guess we'll leave that on a cliffhanger for you to tune in next week. Yeah. <laughs> Not like everybody here has read the book, so you don't know. <laughs> or is reading along or has yeah. a copy that can pick it up and read the next chapter. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a good, it's a good chapter. I th- it is. Yeah. I think it ends on kind of a sad note. I don't know. It's hard to tell how Fitz is feeling after seeing this obviously lonely lonely yes always lonely (laughs) yes but I don't know I don't know how he takes this we don't get any feeling behind this um in the next couple chapters he's talking to Starling and admits that he has a wife and a kid Molly Mm -hmm. and and his kid and says that I have a friend taking care of him and she's like, oh, he's kind to women and like steadfast and reliable. Oh, you know, what woman wouldn't fall in love? And he's like, oh, my God, I had never thought of it like that. So at this <laughs> point, I think he's just like, oh, good. Birik's moving in like they're getting along well. He's helping take yes. care of her more. And Molly's feeling safer. Yeah, my daughter is well looked after. Yeah. So at this point, I think it's just straight pure like relief. I wonder if there's a little bit of like. I'm sure jealousy, jealousy. Yeah. nagging, but I wonder if part of the reason why the retelling of this Fitz dream or skill dream, excuse me, is so void of any type of negative emotion is because we're hearing this from the Fitz who has given those negative emotions to the girl on dragon. Yeah, definitely. So this is just what happened mm-hmm. and he can remember what happened, but the feelings tied to it aren't as strong or as like vivid in his memory because he gives the pain of losing Molly to the dragon. That's right. specifically mentioned, I believe. Right. So even if he's oblivious that Molly could potentially fall in love, there's still a possibility that he could kind of tell something was up here. Or see, I don't think it's that kind of jealousy. I think it's just the jealousy that Birk was there and he was not. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's fair too. I think Fitz is very oblivious to these kinds of things. So <laughs> yes, I, I don't that's even fair. maybe in the back, very back of his mind, but I don't know. He doesn't think that Bjork would do that to him. Yeah. And Bjork and, isn't going into that thinking he will either. No. And Bjork wouldn't if he knew that Fitz was alive. Yeah, I know. So kind of on Fitz. That's, that's like the meeting later in Tawny Man when, when Bjork, the, heartbreaking meeting like why didn't you come to me like why didn't you say you were alive for these past 15 years or whatever yeah and 
Fitz is just like, you would have given up Molly. And Beric's like, well, yeah. <laughs> oh, Beric. <laughs> Obviously. Oh. And and then Fitz is like, you were a better man, though. And he's like, yes, I was. Yeah. So, like, there is understanding and there's love between Beric and Molly that grows. Right. But, definitely. Man, that is a hard scene. Ugh. <laughs> I yeah I don't love it I mean I do because I, lo- I, love, I love the series it's, but it's the epitome of who they are too yes Beric would instantly but I just have like yep even without regard to like perfectly in line with Beric without regard to Molly's thoughts about right. the situation be like yeah Fitz she's yours now like you're yeah. alive yeah <laughs> uh, no I just I don't like it because it it's hard it hurts my heart for Molly and Beric. Right. And Fitz. Because Fitz needed to grow and be away from Molly, I think. 100%. So. Yeah. Experience a little bit more life and then yes. get his joy back from the dragon. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much for tuning in this week. I think we have a somewhat happy Fitz at the end of it. He's a little drugged up, falling asleep in a warm bed. (laughs) Yes, he has a little bit of companionship, which he is always craving. Yes. So thank you for listening into us ramble about different things. (laughs) Looking forward to you joining us next week and speaking to us. But in the meantime, if you have anything to say, please let us know at isfitshappy at gmail.com or message us directly is Fitz happy at Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. All right. This week we have a little bit of a short section here with your guys' comments and replies, concerns, and um, all from our good friend, Ellen, who who first of all wanted to make a quick correction that the previous chapter's mention of the young boy with the cat-like tattoos on his face, um, the cat stripe tattoos on his face, is not the first mention of tattooing. It is actually Patience because she has a hobby of tattooing. Yes, and has tattooed her herself. Yes. Um, and would not let Fitz tattoo. Yes. <laughs> Try tattooing. <laughs> so good catch, Ellen. Totally. I can't believe I forgot that first of all, but mm-hmm. anyway. Then Ellen is also curious about our thoughts on um, Big Ferret and Little Ferret in general and what the trap was about, how they hear about it, how is that message passed along, Were and they- basically... Yeah, were they getting tortured? Yeah, What's going on? What sort of situation did that all come about in? And I'm going to say straight up, we don't know. <laughs> Fitz says, yes. like, I don't know who Big Ferret was, and I'll never find out about him. So <laughs> Yeah, he specifically says, I'll never find out how he knows the information or knew the information. Um, and Luke and I are of very differing opinions on this. I yeah. think... Luke doesn't like to make logical leaps without textual information to back it up. And I have no problem doing that. (laughs) Um, But my line of thinking is that I think Big Ferret was an old blood who was caught along the way trying to relay a message. We know that Big Ferret specifically told Little Ferret that old blood knows and Black Rolf has sent 
Fitz's scent and to go warn him of the trap. So technically it's Black Rolf who knows about the trap. Mm-hmm. If we are to if we're reading this correctly. Yeah. And Big Ferret was kind of just a messenger. Maybe because he was in the area close to Fitz or something else. We don't really know. But in some way or another, he got in Will's crosshairs and was um, killed. According to uh, Small Ferret, hurt to death. Yes. Um, I'm a slightly differing opinion, but same premise. Black Rolf knows somehow. But the wording of Small Ferret is very ambiguous because everything that he says is broken up with commas. Yes. And there is no sense to what phrase goes with what. So it's trap trap for Fitzwolf, period. Old Blood knows, Big Ferret said, go with, go with, warn Fitzwolf. So it could be Old Blood knows, Big Ferret said. Or it could be Big Ferret said, go with, go with. Or it could be, um, you know, Big Ferret said, Old Blood knows and go with to warn Fitz. Right. It could all be one thing, too. So my my thought is Black Rolf knew, passed along the scent somehow. Again, we talked about this. Yes. Um, the, like, weird their, passing of scent. Their scent highway of information <laughs> of something. I don't know. But I think he contacted Big Ferret because he was a trusted Old Blood and that's where like the old blood nose come comes from kind of thing uh, that they know that this is a trap or it was relayed to Black Rolf that, you know, these people are hunting fits down could be somebody who was, you know, given gold to hunt down the old bloods, but they're still loyal to the old bloods and sure, pass along information, right. something like that, where Black Rolf received information that they were trying to set up a trap for fits. Passes that information along to those he trusts in areas and passes his scent along. And Big Ferret was hurt to death in some other way and not necessarily tortured or injured in any way by, you know, Will or anything like that. Because I feel like they were in the he was in the area, obviously, because Small Ferret hid in Will's belongings to go to Blue Lake. Mm -hmm. But... There is no mention of Small Ferret that it was the one-eyed person who did it. And I believe Small Ferret would because he's just talking about going to kill Regal, old blood hater. Right. So my idea and my thought, before you chime in here, I see you want to talk and you want to say like... I'm waiting. (laughs) You're wrong because of reasons. Um, In my mind, there is no textual evidence at all to suggest that... Big Ferret was harmed in a specific way. Okay, but hear me out. How did Little Ferret get into Will's things if Big Ferret wasn't killed by Will slash the people around Will? He's how good would at he hiding have, and sneaking How around. would he have known who Will was to find Will to get in his things? Well, they know about the trap, so they would have like sure. been getting close and stuff. But... Knowing about a trap doesn't mean he would know the scent of Will or who Will is even necessarily. Yeah, but if they know of the trap, like specifically like this is how they're trapping because Big Ferret specifically says go with, you know, the one eyes things. Nobody knows how skill works. 
besides skill users. I, I wasn't talking about the skill. But the trap is skill-based. So they know there's a trap, but how would they... Sure, but that, that's not what I'm saying. There's a trap surrounding this specific person. Right. Right? So big ferret and um, small ferret, no. And they see him like, oh, this is like they're saying this person is has a trap for Fitz. So small ferret with big ferrets dying wish says, go along, warn Fitz that this is a trap and stay away from this person. But but you see how the go along part kind of like in my mind is. Go along with the people who just murdered me because they have a trap for Fitz, right? I can see the leap. I just, there's no textual evidence for it for me. I don't know. I just, I don't know how else you justify little ferret know it getting to Will or knowing that it's Will that's setting the trap. Because of the supposed knowledge that Black Rolf gets and passes along. If there's just a vague, sure, if there's just a vague, like, there's a trap somewhere for Fitz, then it's a magical, how did they ever find Fitz kind of thing. But if it's information of like they're using this one eyed like skill person or whatever, the wizard to set a trap. That feels like a leap, though. And if you're saying that you can't do anything based off a leap. You, OK, then <laughs> I'm just saying okay, then then there is no possible way that this plot point makes sense at all in writing, because then a random witted person in the random corner of the six duchies manages to find fits just based on like a there's a trap somewhere if that's the only information that they learn (laughs) i don't know how to talk to you about this because you have your mind very set on you being right and And you have your mind very set on you being right i'm trying to explain to you like i don't know i just we're gonna we have to agree to disagree we have to agree to disagree it's just as Oh. Literally all we're disagreeing on too is whether Big Ferret like was captured and killed by Will at all. Right. Okay, so like to to sum up my thoughts. Yes. Um total for the whole story is that Black Rolf got information about a trap and my 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 assumption here is that he got the whole story of like there is a trap involving Will somehow. To set fits up or whatever. So he passes along the information to trusted witted ones or old blood around. It gets to Big Ferret, who is around Will at that time, or can, you know, point him out to Small Ferret. And that is where I can no longer, like, in the text, say one person injured him or killed him over the other. So in my mind, he already has all the information. He gets injured and hurt somehow. It could have been Wills or his group. Could have been, you know, random people finding him just beaten up on the street randomly, being an outcast or something. Dying Wish sends Small Ferret along. So that's that's the leap I, I can't quite make in there. Um, is the, like, Ellen asks, you know, how would the ferrets hear about the trap? We, we hear it. He hears it from Black Rolf. We just don't know how much Black Rolf passes along and how much Big Ferret can find out. And there is text that it is the one-eyed one. So Will is 
known to be the person setting the trap. Yeah, go with the, well, Big Ferret says go with the one-eyed one, one's belongings or whatever. Right. Again, there's a little confusion of how much was from Black Rolf and how much Big Ferret find out. And right. Did that contribute to his being injured or right. whatever? But where I think our opinions differ is that I think with that go with the one eyed one stuff, go with the repeating of this go with makes me feel like Will was there when Big Ferret died. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the circumstances would have been. I don't think that necessarily Will needed to have a direct hand in killing this man for being old blood. Right. I think it could have been one of the guards traveling with fake fake Prince Regal and Will just being a jerk to somebody on the street and accidentally murdering them because let's be real regal's guard are a bunch of jerks and they're <laughs> horrible people True. and they have no qualms about roughing up people mm -hmm. and if big ferret had any complications before this or was sick or maybe they took it just a little too far without realizing it because they're drunk or something like i think it's feasible that this is somebody in will's group and as Big Ferret is dying, he's telling Little Ferret, go with this group specifically. So that's, I think, the only difference between our opinion yeah. of the whole is like, I'm pretty convinced that Will was there. Whether or not he killed Big Ferret, I don't know. Right. Whether or not torture was involved, I don't know. And in my opinion is that literally anything could happen. He could have been sick and just been hurting to death. He could have been found out as an old blood and mobbed or lynched by the town folk that he was around. He could have been run over by a cart and previously had pointed out Will's caravan and said, go with these people. Right. And then dying wish, whatever it was, my thought is. I can't say straight up that he was tortured and that's how Big Ferret and Small Ferret found out the information. I think it, we just we just don't know. That's my opinion. Right. And I'm going to say that I'm super frustrated that I don't know how the information is relayed. Yes. Yeah. I want to know how did Black Rolf find out because his wit partner is a bear. So clearly he's not sneaking around the town with his wit partner listening into conversations. And there are ways away from Tradeford or uh, there's another city that Regal was going to go to after Fitz was there. But that right. was like further away from where they were. So right. how did he find out? <laughs> and I guess it could be his wife's bird because sure. birds could potentially. But that feels like that's far away as well. Yeah. You know? it, And maybe they have an old blooded literal rat in the castle. <laughs> It just is one of those things where I want to know these details and Robin Hobb does not give them to us. So it's good to think about. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And the last thing that Ellen says in this comment is that when we were talking about the skill command and the compass in Fitz's head. Yes. They specifically mentioned that the skill is in your brain and it's your brain convinced to go somewhere. It's not like a physical compass. So if Fitz somehow knowledgeably and could logically put together that Verity was at Molly's cabin, for example, right. he would be able to go to Molly's cabin. But since his brain is convinced that he's in the mountains, he has to go there. And until and if Verity took a skill pillar somewhere else, um, he would have to find clues to find out where Verity was and would be confused until he knew a direction and then could go there. Right. And that's kind of what I was thinking as well. It's more of a conviction of 
he was here. I have to go there instead of a magnetic pulling at all times. Right. Yeah. And that's a super good point and a good way to look at it is not necessarily a magic compass, although it would be a lot cooler if it was. <laughs> be very useful if it was. Honestly. If could make it that, work that way. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, it's a very good point to um, say that it probably is just if he could feasibly make it himself believe that his king was somewhere, he could go there. Right. So thank you, Ellen, for your comments. As always, we enjoy discussing them and we look forward to seeing what everybody else has to bring to the table next week. 